Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Thank you, Joe, for leading us in prayer. Uh, Yeah, this is the time for parents to dismiss children for Children's Church. Uh, You can head back to the center door, kids. And the rest of you can open your Bibles to the book of Mark. We are in chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there will be a paperback one underneath one of the chairs in front of you, page 495, you'll find the text, 495, Mark chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses 13 to 17, Um, a couple quick announcements, a couple more quick announcements. Um, As Joe prayed, yes, General Assembly is coming up uh, this coming week, it's the annual business meeting of our denomination in Memphis. And uh, I will be serving as a, a commissioner of our presbytery, so very honored and privileged to do that. Thankful to the session for being willing to send one of its pastors to GA. And just want to um, ask for your prayers for this, uh, but also want to direct your attention to the information on the screen behind me. You can watch this if you're interested by live stream. It will begin on Tuesday night with a worship service. Most business will be taking place throughout the days. Wednesday and Thursday. Um, Often we go late into the night on Thursday. If we don't finish our business on Thursday, we'll continue Friday morning, but most often we get done Thursday night. But anyway, you can look at the the webpage there, the the URL, and uh, dial into that anytime during the week and follow the proceedings if you would like. But certainly your prayers would be appreciated. Second thing is we're going to be starting a Christianity Explored class here soon. And uh, this is a seven-week course class. Class sounds a little too academic. It's really kind of a a get-together. We'll have dessert together. We will watch a video together, and we'll talk a little bit about the book of Mark. But this class in particular is designed for uh, those who are new to the faith or those who are unbelieving, not Christians. Um, Just a very excellent introduction to the Christian faith. So if you're interested in this, we'd love to have you. If you know people who you think might be interested in this, maybe you're talking to somebody about the gospel and uh, you're feeling like you need some help, well, this class will help you. So it'll be at Mary's in my home starting July 20, and we'll be meeting Thursday nights for about seven weeks starting July 20. There is a sign-up sheet at the Welcome Center, so you'll see that right there at the corner. If you want to jot your name and contact info down, and uh, we'll get back in touch with you for with uh, more details. So Christianity Explored starting July 20. All right, let's look to the Word of God. Um, We are going through a series on the book of Mark, so we're just continuing through this book, just taking up the next text from where we left off last time. And um, there's one thing we kind of tend to avoid a lot, I think, here at at New Life, or try not to get too much into political things, because we really want the gospel to be first and foremost, the highest priority, the thing that you hear about uh, the most, 
here, uh, but occasionally you run into a text of Scripture that calls for some uh, observations and commentaries on this topic of politics, and uh, that's what we're looking at here today. For Christians, I'm probably not just Christians, but people in general, one of the most difficult and challenging and thorny and controversial questions is the proper relationship between government and a people, and the proper relationship between the state and the church, we might say. And there are just a number of different opinions about how that relationship should work. And so, I mean, in the very simplest terms, we might say it like this. There are some who think the government should be really big, and there are some who think the government should be small. It's highly simplistic, but sums up the debate fairly well. Those who believe the government should be big, they typically look for high taxation, a lot of regulation, a lot of involvement in the lives of its citizens, high surveillance among big government. Big government uh, often leads to, um, you know, maybe a high degree of security, but generally a lack of freedom. Those who call for small government, well, in a small government situation, there's generally low taxation, there's little regulation, little surveillance, not quite as much involvement, kind of the government takes a hands-off approach to its relationship to its citizens. Very often that results in, in less security. Societies like that tend to be a little more dangerous, but more freedom. And so the debate goes on with varying shades of both sides of this, and complicating this fact or this issue for us as Christians is that the Scriptures actually don't speak to the issue quite as clearly as we might like it to, like them to, and um, so we're left to kind of draw conclusions as best as we can with the small number of texts that we have. But the text that we have today is one of those that speaks to this particular issue. And um, it's this passage here in verses 13 to 17, and I was reading the commentary on this, and somebody mentioned that, that one of the statements we're about to read is the single most influential political statement ever made. So you might quibble with that, but in any regard, what we're about to read is highly relevant, highly instructive for this question of Jesus and government, or how Christians, how people should relate to their government. So if you're able to stand, do that, and I'm going to read uh, this fairly brief passage, Mark 12, 13 to 17. <clears throat> it says this, and they sent to him, that's to Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. 
and they marveled at him. Holy Spirit, would you please give us eyes to see, ears to hear, wonderful things in your word now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to very quickly summarize this text, and then we're going to think of uh, a, a few principles that we can draw from it. So here's what's, what's happening. It's not really a very complicated text. We have here in verse 13 this delegation of people coming to Jesus. You'll remember that Jesus has been under fire throughout the whole book of Mark, but especially here in the last uh, chapter 11 into chapter 12, uh, constantly being challenged. They're seeking to destroy him. And so we have this new group that is sent to Jesus, Pharisees and Herodians. Now, Herodians, this is kind of a new name as we're going through the book of Mark. And one thing that you should notice here, um, maybe you don't know this, but Pharisees and Herodians are a, a highly unlikely groups of people to be together. They're, they're, it's an unlikely alliance for these two groups to get together for anything because they're just very different in the way they view things. We've heard a lot about Pharisees so far. They're um, moralists, they're legalists, they're, they're religious they are, um, we would say, probably more conservative, probably more of the right-wingers, the Pharisees. The Herodians, though, although they were Jews, were very different. The, the, the Herodians were not quite as religious. They were um, a little more irreligious. They would be considered probably a little more liberal, a little more left-wing. They were more pro-Roman government and not quite as interested in their spiritual lives. And so these are two groups that were typically at odds with each other, but they do have one thing in common, and that is they hate Jesus. And so they, they are getting together and uh, seeking to trap Jesus, it says in verse 13, trap him in his talk. And so here's how they go about with this trap. They come to him with a, a question, but before they offer up this question, they, they, they have lots of nice things to say about Jesus in verse 14. Oh, you're true. You don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances. You truly teach the way of God. So they're saying all these really nice things here about Jesus. What they're basically doing here is buttering him up, okay? This is a lot of insincerity. This is flattery what they're doing. You know what flattery is? Flattery is when you say really nice things about people, not because you really mean it, but because you want to get something from them. Or you want to advance some interest that you happen to have. And so that's what these people are doing. And so the question that they ask to Jesus is there in verse 14, the end of verse 14. 14 is kind of a long verse, second half of verse 14. So question is this, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, you see in verse 15 here that Jesus knows their hypocrisy. So he can see that he's being flattered. He can see that they're not being sincere. And he calls that hypocrisy. They're acting outwardly in one way, but inwardly they have a very different motivation. So he recognizes that they're being hypocritical. And he recognizes that they are trying to test him. Why put me to the test, he says. 
Remember verse 13, actually it's to trap him, not just test him, but to trap him. And so here is the trap that the Herodians and Pharisees are, are setting. This question, should we pay taxes to Caesar? If Jesus says no to that question, he's going to make the Romans mad. He's going to make the government mad. He's going to make the authorities mad because they're going to see here is this this guy, he's this teacher, he's got a large following, he's hugely influential, and he is trying to encourage people not to follow the government, not to pay their taxes. He's an insurrectionist, and it would create a big scandal. But if Jesus were to say yes to this question about paying taxes to Caesar, that's going to make the people mad because the Jewish population hates the Roman government. They're seeing Jesus as kind of a savior who's going to deliver them from the Romans. And so if Jesus says, yeah, <clears throat> pay your taxes to Caesar, they're going to see Jesus as siding with the enemy. And that's going to make the people mad. And that's the trap. How's Jesus going to answer this question? What's he going to say? <clears throat> and so here in verse 17 is where we get to what has been called the single most influential political statement ever made. It's verse 17. Here's his answer. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And the people marvel at him. They just recognize what, what a brilliant answer that, that is, how much thought and reflection that answer requires. And so that's why I'm going to take the rest of this message, just to unpack that statement. <laughs> so perhaps we can marvel also at the wisdom that has come from Jesus' lips. So three things here that I think we can draw by way of principle from this statement in verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. First thing would be this, Christians should submit to their governing authorities. That's the first principle, Christians should submit to their governing authorities. So how do we see this? Well, Caesar would be the representative of, of the government here. Caesar is, is the emperor, he's the guy in authority, he's the guy in charge. And so with the first half of this statement in verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, it's Jesus' way of saying that Caesar has a right to some of your money. He has a right to tax you. The government has a right to tax its people, to require some of our income to be given to the government. That's, that's a legitimate right that the government has. Now, here is a place where we really wish the Scriptures maybe were a little more specific. It'd be really great if the Bible said, and here is the limit to how much a government can tax you. Or it has to fall in, you know, between this number and that number, but, but we don't get that. You know, we do get that with a tithe, right? The Scriptures would tell us that tithing to your local church is, 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 is the right thing to do. A tithe means a tenth. That means 10% of your income. But we don't get that kind of specificity with regard to taxation. Um, we can maybe draw some conclusions from other passages of Scripture. There's a passage in 1 Samuel 8. You might remember where um, the uh, Israelites asked for a king, a human king for the first time. They'd had God as their king, but they wanted a human king like the nations. And then in 1 Samuel 8, God gives this warning. He says, okay... You get a king, here's what's going to happen. He is going to take the best of your fields and the best of your grain and your vineyards and your sons 
and your daughters and your flocks. He's going to take and take and take. That this is what a king will do. And, and so there seems to be an implication here that while it is legitimate for a government to tax, it is also the tendency of governments to tax too much or to take too much. By the way, um, highest tax rate in the world today is in the Ivory Coast, actually. African nation taxes its people 60%. Uh, second, Finland, which I also just saw something recently about Finland being the happiest country in the world, so I'm not sure how to put this, these two things together, but um, <clears throat> Finland's tax rate is about 57%. The United States didn't even make the top 10, just so you know. <laughs> uh, this is according to the, the World Population Review. Um, so, governments can tend to, to tax a lot and take too much, which seems to be the warning of 1 Samuel 8. Uh, but nonetheless, Christians should submit to their governing authorities, and we should pay our taxes. But I, I want to revise my main point just a little bit. I just want to add something to it. Christians should submit to their governing authorities even when we disagree with the government, even when we don't like what it's doing. And I'll, by way of example here, go back to the text here in verse 15, when Jesus is asked this question, should you pay taxes or not, he says, um, bring me a denarius, verse 15, bring me a denarius. A denarius was uh, worth about one day's wages. We get that from Matthew chapter 20 uh, in, in the parable there. And we actually, we actually know what these coins look like. Archaeology has been able to uncover some of these coins from this era. And so uh, this is what the coin would have looked like. <clears throat> and you'll see that there is, there is an inscription on it. And uh, that's what Jesus mentions um, here. And um, the, the inscription actually read like this. This is what it says. Translation would be, Tiberius, Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. That's what it said on the coin. Divine Augustus. So, it was common in that day to ascribe divinity to the emperor. And that's what the coin said. Now, it seems like that would be a, a perfect opportunity for the Jew or the Christian to say, I can't pay taxes with a coin that says that. That's blasphemy. Acknowledging the emperor as divine? There's only one true God, and it's not the emperor. But that's what the coin said, and what Jesus is saying is, pay up. I mean, that is no reason not to pay your taxes. The average Jew, certainly the Christian, would disagree profoundly with that statement. But pay your taxes anyway. Roman, uh, Paul in Romans will um, repeat this or affirm this when he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Then jumping down to verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. So the broader application is not just paying your taxes, but submitting to government authorities, governing authorities. As Christians, we are to be good citizens. We're to respect our leaders. 
We're to honor our leaders. We are not to slander our leaders, whether that be the mayor of Muncie or the governor of Indiana or the president of the United States. We're to be good citizens. We're to obey the traffic laws. Even when you're driving on Tillotson, which is a four-lane road, but for some reason it's 30 miles an hour or 35 or whatever it is. I have to confess, I need to repent of speeding on Tillotson. I've done it many times. To be a good citizen is to obey the traffic laws, to don't let your dogs bark after 11 p.m. That's what I'm told is the limit for barking dogs. Participating in the political process, voting, it's a privilege to vote. You have an opportunity to have influence on who is your governing authorities. Be educated, vote intelligently. Pray for your leaders. First Timothy 2 commands us very specifically. We're to pray for those who are in authority. I think Christians complain a whole lot more about their leaders than they pray for them. I wonder how, many, how different things would be in our country if that were reversed, if we prayed for our leaders as much as we complain about them. I wonder how that would change things. And then lastly, pay your taxes. And I know it's kind of a cliche, but it's true. Don't cheat on your taxes. Pay what you owe. If the people of Jesus' time had to pay what they owed, we should pay what we owe also. So Christians should submit to their governing authorities. Second principle is this, that there is a proper distinction between church and state. There's a proper distinction between church and state. So I kind of focus on the first half of verse 17, now thinking of, 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 both, of both sides of this statement. Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Certainly one conclusion we can draw from this is that the two are not the same. Caesar slash government is not the same as God. There's an important distinction between the two. They have different responsibilities. We look to each to do different things for us. We don't rely on the government to come in here and administer the sacraments. We don't have some government official come in and teach our discipleship hour class. I don't look to the government to tell me what I should preach from the pulpit. We don't look to the government to do the responsibility of the church. And we also don't rely on the church to fix our roads and fill our potholes, although I would say our government could use some help with that here locally. Maybe we should offer our assistance. I don't know what we need to do to get that fixed, but we we don't generally rely on the church, right, to come in and fill the potholes. We don't rely on the uh, church to come put the fire out at your house. You don't call your elders to do that. You call the government, right? So there's a distinction between the two, between church and, and state. John Frame has said it like this, when we seek leadership in the battle against Satan, we turn to the rulers of the church, for the state can't help us there. When we seek physical defense against physical attacks, we turn to the state, for the church has no swords. Now, in history, the two have been combined to such an extent that the church was waging war in some cases, but that's not the situation that we face now. So, you know, what we can gain from this here is that the state, the government, has a a good intended purpose 
And so that's something we need to be reminded of. The government has been established for our good. We live in a fallen world. People are People are, are sinful. They, they tend to do things wrong. They tend to violate one another's rights. They tend to create societies that are unsafe. And so God has instituted government to restrain the sinful impulses of its citizens. And Romans, again, here, verse 4 in Romans 13 tells us that the one in authority is God's servant for your good. And God has established these governing authorities for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So we see one of the responsibilities here of, of government is to punish wrongdoers, to uphold safety in a community, to protect life. And I would add to preserve the freedoms of the church to do our work in proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. The church should not be interfered with in that task. So government is established for good. But as we're thinking about this principle, there is a proper distinction between church and state. That can go wrong in various ways. I mean, there are certain imbalances that can happen when we think about this. You know, and here in America, we just talk about this all the time, right? Separation of church and state, separation of church and state. You know, we just We've got one way over here, and we've got the other way over here, and there's like no connection between the two, and I, I think that's an imbalance. Uh, we should be careful about pushing the distinction too far, and that can happen in two ways. One way we can push the distinction too far is by saying, if you're devoted to God, you can't be devoted to your state or your nation. And so th there is, among Christian circles, even today, there's this kind of assumption if you're a really faithful Christian, you should have no regard for the nation to which you belong. And, and part of that is a fear of nationalism, and we've seen nationalism go wrong in a lot of ways. You know, the Nazis were nationalists, and so, you know, it can go wrong for, for sure. But there is no reason why a Christian can't love his or her nation. Kevin DeYoung, I'm going to borrow a phrase from him, he talks about compatible loyalties, that you can be loyal to your God and loyal to your nation at the same time. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. It can go wrong. We can make an idol out of our nation, and we can think of the nation as the answer to all of our problems. That would be idolatry. But we don't have to put the nation aside completely as Christians. It's okay to be patriotic. It's okay to have an American flag flying out in your front yard. We're not putting an American flag in here, but you can fly one out in, in, in your yard. And as Kevin DeYoung says, it's okay to get choked up at the national anthem. It's okay. You love your nation. That's all right. Read Lamentations and just look at how Jeremiah just laments. He's just so stricken by sorrow because of what has happened to his nation. He loves his nation. Read Romans 9, the first couple of verses in particular, where Paul has his heart for his, his kinsmen according to the flesh. He wants them to know the gospel. He wants them to be saved. He has a love for his fellow Israelites, his fellow Jews. So that, that's one, I think that's one imbalance where we think if we're devoted to God, we can't be devoted to our nation or our state. The other imbalance is that we can think that if we're devoted to our nation that we can't be devoted to God. It's just the opposite. 
There's this assumption that if we're committed to the state or to our government, that God, religion, morality somehow needs to play no part in our relationship to the government. This is an example of church and state being divided too much, where people think the state should be entirely secular. You'll hear phrases like leaders should govern without regard to their religion. Sometimes you'll hear their religion, their their Christianity should have no impact on how they legislate. I mean, that's just absurd. That's just impossible to do. All laws are enforced morality. Every law has a moral component behind it. The question is just always whose morality is driving the law. So when you think of all of the issues that are before us, controversial issues, whether it be immigration or health care or abortion or transgender issues, LGBT stuff, these things are all profoundly theological and moral. We shouldn't be expected to try to address those issues apart from our religion. It's impossible. You know, there was a time when things were very different, actually, in this country. There was a guy named Alexis de Tocqueville. He was a Frenchman, and he came to the United States in the early 1800s, and he wrote a book where he just recorded some of his observations about what he witnessed in the United States. And so here's just one quote from that book. I mean, look at this. You know, just keep in mind this idea that church and state should be so separated that religion has no impact on anything we do in this nation. And then read this. In the United States, this is a Frenchman. This is not an American. This is someone just observing what what he sees in the country. In the United States, the sovereign authority is religious. There is no country in the whole world where the Christian religion retains a greater influence than in America. America is still the place where the Christian religion has kept the greatest real power over men's souls. And nothing better demonstrates how useful and natural it is, that is Christianity, to man since the country where it now has the widest sway is both the most enlightened and the freest. He's saying what I see in America is an enlightened and free nation. And what De Tocqueville is saying is, it's because of Christianity. I think one of the reasons that we're in the mess that we are as a nation, total confusion on very basic concepts, one of the reasons why is we've divided church and state way too much. There's a distinction between the two. Yes, don't want to lose that, but let's not make that distinction too wide. As you think about who to vote for, when you think about people who say that they're guided by Scripture, that should be a pro. When you're thinking about candidates who say, yeah, I acknowledge Jesus Christ as king, that should be a pro for you when you're thinking about whether you vote for that person. Don't think, oh, no, i got to keep religion and state separate so I can't think in theological categories as I consider who to vote for. Don't, don't think that way. <laughs> you're a Christian. If the Bible can guide all of our lives individually and as families? Why why can't the Bible guide governments? It has guided our government in the past. It doesn't anymore. And that's one of the reasons why we find ourselves in the place that we are. The, The last thing here to think about is that all governing authorities 
fall under the lordship of King Jesus. So now focusing on the second part of this phrase, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Give to God the things that are God's. What Jesus is saying here is that, yes, we all have a duty to our governmental authorities, but as Christians, we all have a much greater duty to our sovereign king and God. And how do we know this? And how do we know that this is one of the points that Jesus is making? And it's because in verse 16, when Jesus asked for this denarius, he asked this question, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they say, Caesar. And so he says, okay, well then give that to Caesar. It's got Caesar's likeness, so give that to Caesar. But that word for likeness might be translated in your version as image. It could be translated likeness, it can be translated image. Likeness, image. Does that ring a bell? Likeness, image. That's Genesis 1.26, where we hear that God made us in His image and likeness. And so Jesus' point here seems to be, yeah, coins, money is made in Caesar's image. So give what He asks, but people are made in God's image, so they belong to God. Caesar belongs to God. The Pharisees belong to God. Herodians belong to God. You and I, everybody belongs to God. Not everybody in a saving way, but we're all, as His creatures, responsible to Him. And that's the point that is made. The image of God is stamped on every single human being. God has a right to some of our money, but more importantly, God has a right to all of our lives. He has a right to everything about you. He has a right to your time. He has a right to your convictions. He has a right to what you do. He has a right to the goals that you set for yourselves. He has a right to your money. He has a right to your soul. He has a right to your heart. He has a right to your worship. Because you're made in His image, not in Caesar's image. And so a guy named Christopher Watkin says this, Caesar, or the government, that's my parenthetical phrase, Caesar, the government, never owns me. He rightly can demand my taxes, but he has no right or authority to my very self, for I am in the image not of Caesar, but of God. God, on the other hand, can rightly demand my very self because I am in his image and because he has redeemed me from slavery to sin to belong to him. So what this means, one of the implications of this, friends, is that there can come a time when civil disobedience is required of the Christian. There can come a time when we say to the government, no, I'm not going to do what you require. In fact, I would say, if you can't imagine, if you cannot conceive of a situation where you would disobey the government, the conclusion might be that the government has taken the place of God in your life. I mean, if your posture is, I just say yes to whatever the government says, that's, that's displaying a loyalty that only God deserves. Saying yes to whatever He asks, that's what God can require. But that's not what a government can require. The government has no right to 
obedience in every single aspect of your life. And so there, there might be times, and we should think about this. You should think about it as an individual. We should think about it as a church. Are there times when we would say no to the government? And what occasions might those be? I mean, just a couple quick guidelines. I think one reason for civil disobedience, proper reason for civil disobedience, is when government requires what God forbids. So we have an example of that in Exodus chapter 1, the king of Egypt, he said to the Hebrew midwives that you need to kill the uh, Hebrew male babies, you need to murder them, and it says in verse 17 of chapter 1, they feared God, and so they didn't do as they were commanded. They refused to do what the government told them to do. Scriptures present that to us as a totally legitimate and good thing. So, when government requires what God forbids, that's a time for civil disobedience. And the second thing is just the reverse of that, when government forbids what God requires. And so, an example of that would be Daniel chapter 6, where a law was passed in Babylon that said that nobody could offer up a petition to any god. One of the things we forget about that passage, I think, is that that law was only for 30 days. And so you can imagine a Christian saying, oh, okay, 30 days, that's no big deal. I just won't pray for 30 days, and then they'll lift it, and I'll go back to my Christian life. But not Daniel. As soon as he saw that the document was signed, it says as soon as he knew that, he went up into his room and knelt down on his knees and prayed. (laughs) In fact, he prayed three times that day. Could have very easily said, well, there's a law now, I better just do it once opened up the windows, and prayed. So that's an example of refusing the government, forbidding to do what God requires. When I've said this before, you know, as I just think of our own situation and when this might apply to us, you know, if we were ever required to perform a same-sex wedding here, we're not going to do it. If the government requires it, we're not going to do it. And, you know, what would be the consequences of that? We'll see. But that's just, you know, an immediate example I can think of where this might become applicable for us. So, civil disobedience might be necessary because all governing authorities fall under the lordship of the risen Jesus Christ. So, th- these are complex issues and... Um, you know, probably raise a lot of questions in, in your minds. Uh, th- these are issues where the answers are, are not easy. Th- these are issues where different Christians might have different convictions on what um, or when civil disobedience is required and, and, and when it's not. Uh, until Jesus comes, friends, we, we just have to, we got to pray. We got to wrestle with Scripture. We got to gather together. We got to talk with each other. We got to think through these things got to encourage each other, and just continue in that process. But here's the good news, friends, and that is that when Jesus does come again, he's going to usher in a glorious kingdom, and governments will no longer need to restrain sin in the world, because sin will be eliminated and purged from every heart of his people. Wars will cease to the very ends of the earth. Jesus will wipe away the tears of every person who has placed faith and trust in Him, and He will be exalted 
among the nations forever and ever. And that's the day that we long for, so Jesus, come quickly. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you speak to us in your word, and we pray, Father, for wisdom as we seek to apply uh, what your word says, in particular this morning as we think about rendering to our government that which belongs to it and rendering to you that which belongs to you. Please, Father, help us. Please give us wisdom so that in all of these things, you are honored and glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we respond in praise.